Welcome to the Empaths Revolution podcast, the home of intersectional spirituality. Empaths Revolution is a platform dedicated to empowering, informing and supporting empaths and other spiritually sensitive people via podcasts, expert guests, blogs, books and personal one-to-one and group support. I'm your host, Harris Eddie Hill, and I'm non-binary, neurodivergent and an intuitive empath. I'm a podcaster, best-selling author, NLP practitioner and timeline therapist, and I'm pleased to bring you today's episode. Hey everyone and welcome back to today's episode where I'm joined by Jesse. Hey Jesse. Hi. I found you on TikTok and you talk a lot about do you want to share a little bit about your story and like a summary of what you've been through what you talk about? Sure um, so just after my 18th birthday I committed two violent crimes a robbery and a shooting um, and then I spent 19 years in prison trying to figure out what I had done, how I'd gotten there, how I was going to move forward, what I could do to kind of make up for what I'd done. And so it was this process of two steps forward and one step back and a lot of really good ideas and a lot of really bad execution and a lot of struggles and trying to figure out what that was. Um, And then when I got out, uh, my girlfriend said, you know, you should really, you should go on TikTok. You should tell your story. Like you're just, people are going to want to hear this. And as actually, I told you before we started recording, I said, you know, I, I thought I was going to get out and be an electrician. Like, who's going to want to hear my story? Who's going to care if, you know, some guy got out of prison? And instead, there's become this interest in daily life in prison, in criminal justice reform, in the humanization of people behind bars. Um, it's It's been really dramatic and really amazing. And it was nothing that I could have imagined or foreseen. Yeah, it is amazing. I think it's good. I, I mean, I can only imagine that because how long ago did you get out? In August, August 16th. Wow. So it's like not even six months. So I, I imagine that life before you went in is like massively different to how it is now you've come out. Yeah. I mean, technology is the biggest thing, the, the way that technology kind of runs our lives. But even more, somebody said this and I thought it was so uh, on point is, is the immediacy of all things. There's no delay. Every grat- everything is gratified, whether it's, you know, pornography or ordering a pizza or finding a map, like everything is at your fingertips and everybody expects that. And I was in a world where that was the polar opposite. Like you wait until 6 p.m. and hope that there's a mail call and hope that you get mail. And and so this world feels very alien. But I've also kind of amazed at how quickly I've fallen into the trap or maybe not even the trap, but just fallen into the lifestyle. And then suddenly I'm starting to have these expectations of immediacy and having to stop and step back and say, wait a minute, this isn't how I got here. This kind of desire to fulfill uh, things with immediacy or immediately was really the addictive behavior that got me to prison in the first place. So I need to take a step back. I need to kind of slow down and I need to figure out what about this brave new world is really wonderful and what is probably not what I want to include in my life. Yeah, that's really good. Maybe an advantage that you're coming to this a bit older and you're able to think about what you want because, you know, I've got friends whose kids are sort of like, you know, sort of 10 and 12 and all of that age and they're on screens all day. And me at that age, I was outside and, um, you know, playing in mud and collecting insects in buckets <laughs> so it's a uh, world yeah very different so jesse um did like at the time that you com- like before you committed the crimes that you did 
do you think looking back that it was obvious that that was going to happen or was it like really out of the blue for you that that like I mean for me where I was sitting I, I it, it seemed out of the blue from everybody else it seemed really obvious and really kind of inevitable I had a um, a teacher in high school that I went to lunch with since I've been out and she said, Jesse, like, you know how many times I screamed at that school? Because they would say, well, you know, we think maybe he just needs to grow out of this. And she was like, he needs fucking treatment. Like, he needs to go somewhere he's going to get help. This is not okay. And everybody just assumed uh, that, you know, it was a phase or, yeah, he's doing drugs or, yeah, he's doing this. But um, I think on the other hand, I had this ability to kind of seem okay, even when I was completely falling to pieces. And until I found cocaine, I had this kind of I, I was definitely on a rocky boat and I was definitely going to capsize, but it may have taken a little bit more time. And then when ca uh, cocaine came along, it really was this like supercharger and everything became intensified. And then my, you know, my kind of fall downhill went from a slow trickle to just like a, a, a hurricane or a tsunami or something. Um, so I, I think it depended, but I think those people who saw the progression as it was happening, saw the kind of ine inevitability or the, the train wreck. Um, actually, somebody who wrote a letter for me at my sentencing, I remember it was, it was a kid he dated a girlfriend of mine afterwards. We weren't close. There was anything, but he was the most, he had the most profound letter where he said, you know, I watched Jesse day after day and it wasn't that I liked him or I disliked him, but I just knew what was coming and I had to get out of the way of this inevitable train wreck. And I didn't know what I could do or what anybody could do, but he's not a bad person. He just doesn't know how to stop. Um, and it was really profound because to read that, I felt like somebody understood what my experience was. Cause that was, you know, when I was arrested, you know, I, obviously I didn't want to be arrested, but I remember when I, when they put the handcuffs on me, I felt like I could breathe out for the first time in three months or two months or however long it had been. Wow. Like I felt like I could relax because somebody had finally stopped me. And the whole time I didn't know how to stop myself from getting high, from chasing, from trying to fulfill, you know, every need and desire from just kind of the manic insanity I was going through. Um, yeah. And he understood that from the outside. So that was amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. Um, I think you know, and also it's like, I think it's important to remember that until 25, most people's um, brain hasn't developed to the point where they can control their compulsions anyway. So I think, you know, so did you not have anybody in your life who like tried to confront you or help you to get a handle on it? I think people did, but I was, I was good enough at hiding it or I was good enough at denying it or people didn't really understand. Um, you know, my mom loved me to death and she wanted to do things to help me, but she didn't understand what was going on. Like she knew that I was drinking or that I was getting high and she tried to like, you know, kind of break down on me about that. But I, I think she didn't realize that was such a big deal. And then she didn't know I was doing cocaine. Like that was again, like I said, the really the tipping point. Um, but otherwise, I mean, it was just kind of normal in my group forever to be drinking, getting high, partially because it, it was a teenage behavior, but also partially because I had kind of remove myself from all the relatively healthy people I had been around. I had become more and more and more separated from any kind of healthy or reasonable behavior, either because people decided it didn't make any sense to be around me, which was true, or because I felt uncomfortable being around people who were healthy and really kind of spotlighted just how unhealthy I was living. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I ended up in a world where that was kind of normal. I mean, I was hanging out with guys that were doing the same stupid stuff that I was doing and we didn't recognize how far from you know who we had been or who we wanted to be, we had gone. Yeah, I hear that. And I've experienced that as well. I, I, I had a friend when I was younger who uh, was hooked on heroin. And I think I was the last friendship that died. And after that is really when he, he dove off the, the, the deep end. So, um, yeah, I've seen it before. Do you, do you hope, I mean, I imagine that with your TikToks, you have a lot of people who are sharing stories and they, 
even if they themselves haven't been in your shoes exactly, they still recognise far more quickly what's happening than I imagine, you know, I imagine that things hopefully have moved on a lot more since when it kind of happened to you. What do you think about that? I hope so. I mean, the, the, there are a lot of different aims of having a platform and sharing that. But one of the main ones is trying to reach, you know, some kid before he goes down the path I did or the parents of some kids so they can recognize it and hopefully intervene or just somebody. If we can stop this from happening to one person, we stop one person from causing this kind of harm to other people and even to themselves, then that's the goal. Um, and then secondarily, it's kind of to support those who've been there and make them believe in a second chance because a lot of people don't. You know, we have the, one of the most common things I get as far as like trollish comments on, on my videos are you should have been in prison for life. They should just execute you. You know, all criminals need to die. You know, why are we ever letting people out? And this is a mentality that's really common in America. It's, it's obviously not everybody because I receive a lot of support. But when, when people have that mentality, how do you expect a kid to turn his life around? Or how do you expect somebody behind bars to feel like they can move forward? I, I had a phone call today with a guy I'd been locked up with. We had, we'd been out of touch and he finally went to contact me thinking I was still locked up and just found out I was out today. And he said, man, he said, I've been struggling since I got out because everybody looks at me like a piece of crap. Like, doesn't matter what I do. I, I run a business. I'm married. I have a family. I'm doing everything right. And everybody always just looks at me like a felon. And I think it's difficult because some people have that experience. And I haven't had that experience for the most part, other than online. Um, but that's also because I think I'm... I, I'm hoping that by sharing about things openly, by kind of taking this by the, the reins, there can be some discussion, there can be some hope, there can be some movement in another direction that we're not stigmatizing people, but instead finding ways to reintegrate them into society. Yeah. And I think I can kind of understand, especially if people are very much in the victim mentality, that they might say like, all people who are like locked up in prison should just stay there forever. And obviously that's completely rubbish. Um, but, you know, I often say to those people, well, even if that's the case, how are you going to stop more people ending up in prison? Like, this is not this is not just down to choice. This is often like issues of mental health, poverty, all of these different issues. Um, and, you know. You said um, earlier that by the time you actually got arrested, you could finally breathe because somebody had stopped you. But how do you feel about the actual um, experience of being in prison and you know how much of it is rehabilitating and how much of it is actually like further traumatizing and stuff like that there there are some nominal programs um for rehabilitation there was one program i talked about this the other day the victim impact program was the single best thing i saw in 19 years in prison and it was a program that was designed to bring people face to face with what they had done. And so it was testimony of people who had been victims of all these various crimes, um, either written or on video, and then eventually at the end of the class in person. And we sat there and we, we read or we saw the experience of the pain that we had caused. And it was powerful. I mean, there was not a single, everybody was crying, everybody was struggling, everybody was kind of feeling in a different way. And this didn't happen until a year and a half ago. Before that, I had not been to a single like meaningful treatment program the whole time I'd been locked up. Um, and, and that was just ironic to me, the, the way it's set up. Again, it's called the Department of Corrections, but there's very little actual intention put into rehabilitating people. It's really just warehousing. Um, and it's really unfortunate. And, and it's not on the part of the staff necessarily because there have been amazing officers and psychologists and counselors, but there's just this kind of inertia against any kind of movement or any kind of growth. And even the staff will complain about how do people expect you to succeed when you get out? Or they'll talk about somebody who's struggling and saying, you know, this guy's getting out tomorrow, despite the fact that we know he's a gangbanger. We know he's like 
hurting people. We know he's doing this and there's nothing we can do, but that guy over there has been charge free and uh, on perfect behavior and turned his life around for 20 years and he's never getting out. Um, it's just, it's really unfortunate. And as far as traumatizing, I was fortunate to be in a relatively non-violent state. I mean, there, there was violence and compared to the average person on the street, there was a tremendous amount of violence, but compared to some of the other pri or prison systems in other states or the federal system, I was really fortunate. Um, but yeah, even, even just basic things like the lack of touch, uh, the lack of kind of like meaningful emotional interaction, the inability to access um, it's simple things, the, the inability to nurture, you know, to raise dogs or raise children or interact with other people. Those things are, are so meaningful and so important for our development. And they aren't talked about a lot. Um, I knew somebody who did their, her doctoral study on the effect of a lack of touch in neonatal care and that the developmental disorders that result from literally just a, a baby or a newborn not being touched, not being held. And I think that that continues in life. And I think we ignore that. But if you stick people in kind of a hardened situation with kind of a hardened group of people and then you don't integrate or you, you don't institute any kind of rehabilitation or focus on healing or focus on kind of um, softening or, or whatever that is. Uh, yeah, people go out worse than they come in a lot of times. And that's really unfortunate. Mm, definitely. I think I know I've heard this of the prison system in the UK. Uh, but generally speaking, if you don't have a drug problem when you go into prison, like it's really likely that you'll leave with one. That is entirely accurate in Virginia, unfortunately. Yeah. So for me, I feel like I've been fortunate enough to have met lots of different people over my entire lifetime so that, you know, I don't fall for these sort of boogeymen that are um, kind of sensationalized in the media. Um, but it's something I've heard from people over time who haven't had this exposure to like lots of different people and experiences that they're like, the idea of prisoners being released full stop is scary to them. And because, you know, they own, they've only had their, the experience they have from the media. But, you know, I often say to them, but, you know, but the, the number of, of people who are in prison who are actually really would be a danger to you in a room at any given moment is probably very small. Most people have, who are getting locked up and, and particularly in America as well, because, you know, there's so much like petty things like, you know, um, you know, cannabis dealing and stuff like that, which is, you know, it's, it's not, it's not as bad as other crimes if you were going to uh, kind of, trying to quantify it and everything but you know obviously there are going to be a few prisoners here or there who have done something really heinous and they don't care they're only in there because they got caught and they would do it again but would you say that generally speaking the majority of people who are locked up would are no more no more a threat to people than people who aren't in prison the general public um i mean i think that you talked before about the effects of addiction and mental health and poverty. And those are the three driving forces for prison. And you have that very small percentage of sociopaths or psychopaths or people that are not going to change or are not, you know, the result of conditions, but are just kind of, or maybe the result of conditions, but it, it, it's somewhat irreparable. Um, no, but for the most part, and I, I think about this, my, my grandfather worked in a mental hospital at one point. It was a mental hospital for the criminally insane. And everybody said, oh, well, how do you feel? Why are you going there? And and he said, I feel more comfortable there than I do on the street because I know what each one of these guys is going to do. Like, I feel comfortable there. I have no idea out in the world what people are going to do. And that was really it. I mean, 
as I said, there were, you know, violent encounters. There were things that happened. But for the most part, I felt comfortable around the people I was around. And there were those individuals. You find that guy, you're like, this guy, yeah, something is wrong here. You don't want to be here. Um, but yeah, especially to a person who's not related, even the majority of the violence in prison is gang on gang or it's behind drugs or it's behind money. It's not just a random outlet. It's not just, you know, random rape and murder and, and the things you see in the media or you see in movies. It's much more based around economics, which is unfortunately is on the street as well. Mm. Yeah, totally. What do you what difference do you think it would make if people if it what you know, if going into prison and, and sort of criminal justice reform and stuff like if if it was centered on rehabilitation and healing, you know, trauma therapy, all of that stuff, what how do you think that would change the people that are in there and, and the system overall? Well, I mean, that's kind of my message, right? So for people to change, they need the opportunity and they need the willingness. And we can't give anybody or force anybody to have the willingness, but we can give them the opportunity. So I received the opportunity because I had friends and family that were willing and able to pay for me to go to college, who were able to connect me with psychologists and meditation teachers and people to talk to and send me books and support me and love me. And 19 years after that, I was I was a different person. You know, I walked out of prison with a new sense of purpose and identity and hope and connection and meaning. And I think that what happened for me could happen for a lot more people. And I can't say it would happen for everybody because there's still that willingness component and not everybody's going to have that. But I had an opportunity that I took advantage of and most people don't have that opportunity. So when people say, oh, well, you've done all this great work, it's like, I may have done work, but I've done work only because I've been able to, because I've been allowed to, because I've been supported and loved. So again, if, if the difference in the prison system is a lot more people would come out looking to you know help other people, looking to have a meaningful life and connection and experience like I am, then coming out kind of broken and traumatized and just trying to figure out how to fill that void or trying to figure out how to get that next lick or whatever their goal is now, because they're coming out worse than they went in. And it's, it's, it's unfortunate. For sure. But I guess like from a, from a cynical point of view, I would say, well, if people are more likely to reoffend or get caught using again or whatever, it's just more staff for the prison industrial complex, right? I mean, and large, yeah. There, so the prison industrial complex, I'm not sure how it is over in the UK, but people talk a lot about private prisons and private prisons are an issue, but they are a small population or a small portion of the prison system. But the companies that provide phone services and commissary services and email services and whatever they do to these prisons are billion dollar companies. And if you think about the incentive they have for people to continue to get locked up or get locked up again, and all the money they make that they can lobby for stricter sentencing laws or lobby against investment and rehabilitation programs, they have a financial incentive to keep people in prison and keep people returning to prison when released. So you're fighting against a billionaire system, which is not really a, a good way for it to be. And instead, if we take this as kind of a public health issue or a public um, you know, safety issue, and we say, no, we're going to invest in this because this is best what's, what's best for society. But the problem is you don't have anybody countering those big interests financially because people don't know about it. Or they don't care. I, one of the most common things that I get on videos, you know, from kind of a positive perspective is I had no idea. What do you mean Virginia doesn't have parole? What do you mean they don't have these programs? What do you mean you, you can't go to college? What do you mean you can't? All these things that people assume they, they know because of col or excuse me because of TV or movies or, or popular media, and there's just this kind of black hole of information, and people don't know about it, so therefore they don't care. So you have this huge vested financial interest and and just a, ignorance of the general population because it's not talked about. So basically, it's always going to lean in this direction that is not um, necessarily beneficial to society as a whole. Yeah. 
I hear that. I um I had a, uh, somebody I, I've known for many years um, went away to prison a couple of years ago um, for some quite unsavory things. And I heard that he, despite the fact that before he got locked up, he was a tradesman and he was qualified, you know, he wasn't, he's not stupid at all. Um, but they've put him down as being illiterate so that they can claim money to teach him to read. I can see that. And it really, I mean, I wouldn't say I was massively surprised, but I was quite disgusted. So I don't, I think, I think the US is in the media a lot, particularly over here for like how things are run and what's been going on. But I, I, I don't know how confident I would be to say that the UK is like massively better or not doing the same things in a more underhanded, quieter way. Are you looking to get your energy in order, spring clean your life and manifest things you actually want? My Align Your Life Starter Pack has helped people to relieve insomnia, anxiety, to become grounded and to manifest exciting new things as well as cut energetic cords with people who are draining their energy. And as a bonus, it's designed with non-visual and neurodivergent people in mind, so it's more accessible than most things currently on the market. Affordable and instantly downloadable, you can find it at mooksharrishill.com forward slash mybl. Align your life, reclaim your power. So moving forward, like what's your aim, Jesse? Do you want to like educate the public about this or do you, you know, like what would it mean to you to maybe like get some kind of politicians involved or do you have any big dreams with what you're doing and the work that you're doing? Sure. I mean, you talk about like unexpected. It was, you know, five months ago, I was sitting in prison thinking the best thing that I was going to do that day was go, you know, clean up vomit and medical. Um, and since getting out, I've had sit downs. I've, I've had a lunch with the Commonwealth's attorney, the local kind of um, prosecuting attorney for my area three times. And we've talked about the reforms that we can make or the, the causes we can support and the things that we have in common. I've talked to kind of the the uh, the arch enemy of the criminal justice reform movement, this this local delegate, who is kind of stood in the way, who I actually found very personable and very reasonable. He just has kind of a, a pro-victim stance to the exclusion of everything else, which I understand his intention. I just don't agree with it entirely. And I got to meet with the governor. Like I, this bizarre, this is not again what I expected, you know, five months ago. And so I have been able to do that. And you know, with the current platform that I have now, my main goal is, like I said hopefully to educate people about what the process is and, and hopefully stop one kid from going down that path or support the parents or the loved ones of a family member who's locked up, both so they can be okay themselves and also that, so they can support that person so they have the resources they need to get out and, and succeed in the world. But then it's, it's this larger conversation about criminal justice reform and wellness in general because I'll talk about all these programs that I feel like are necessary or these basic emotional skills or these basic social skills. And people will say, hey, I don't know how to do that. And I've never been to prison. I, I don't know, like, why aren't we learning this? Like, why isn't this being taught in society as a whole? And there's this kind of history of the school system as a product of leading people directly into factory jobs or, you know, some of these old uh, ideas where we prepare people with, you know, educational skills that may be practical in a very limited circumstances, but almost no life skills. And then the most common response is, 
oh, well, you know, that's what the home's for. That's what the family's for. And it's like, well, if you grow up in a wonderful, you know, two-parent whole family, that, that's amazing. And I'm really happy for you. But a lot of people don't. And if you hear the horror stories about foster care, you hear the horror stories about people who grow up in abusive homes, and then you're saying, well, why didn't the parents teach that? Well, it would have been nice if the parents weren't abusing the kid. Like, can we just start there? Um, so again, the platform, if, if, if there is anything, is to hopefully, you know, share this message and spread this message and not only do it within the criminal justice system, which is kind of my focus because of my experience, but also in society as large. Like, is there no reason we can't talk about wellness in the general population, that we can't talk about emotional regulation skills or social skills to people in general? Because I think it's, it's everybody has that interest, but a lot of times it's nobody knows where to go or what to do or where we can start. And I'm hoping that my experience or the, the people that I've worked with or the people that I to get to work with in the future can kind of inform an idea of what we can do moving forward. Yeah, that's amazing. And also like surely if we are kind of having these conversations and there is this kind of emotional education going on in society, like surely that's preventative. Very much. Not only, yeah, not only does it doing it with prisoners prevent them from coming back to prison, if we teach these skills to kids, we're going to have much fewer people going to prison in the first place. We're going to have much happier relationships. We're going to have much happier people. We're going to lower our suicide rate. I mean, we're going to have the rippling effects of good of actual emotional education is, is kind of incomprehensible because it's not just the first ring. It's these concentric rings that go on forever. Uh, but again, it's really easy to invest in a STEM program, which I think is absolutely amazing. And I'm glad it's being invested in. But will, you know, your science and technology degree really allow you to be happy? I don't know. And that doesn't seem to be the priority. And it's not just happy in the sense of some self-serving, I want to be happy and I don't care what happens to anybody else, but a wellness that allows you to be a better employee and a better friend and a better partner and a better child and a better parent. And as we look at the actual, you know, effect that we can have, that is really my goal. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think as well, like, uh, you know, when people like were are saying like, oh, emotional education is something that should happen in the home. Like from my perspective, uh, and emotional education is like a big part of my life and what I spend so much time talking about with people, you know, like yourself who've got like a cause or, you know, and just my friends and stuff. I feel like emotional education and emotional intelligence is kind of at an all time high. And even 20 years ago, it was at, it wasn't even 50 percent of what it is now, I don't feel. So I don't know, you know, what what magical parents like in the past who didn't have an, a single idea of any of this we're, we're going to teach kind of our generation let alone anyone younger like it's just I feel like you know all of the things that are happening now are quite obviously a consequence of decades worth of not being emotionally intelligent or emotionally educated so you know I feel like the change starts now and I I think it comes up a lot when you've got a cause and I know it's been the same for me doing intersectional work for many years which I've given up now because I got very tired <laughs> but I think the people who come along and I'm sure you relate to this Jesse who are like oh why can't people just do this or you know they kind of want to shut the conversation down with like a you know one short sentence that's meant to fix everything and I just feel like those are the people who are they don't want to be vulnerable they don't want to have these conversations and they're ultimately not really being very helpful so um I don't know how you feel about that and also do you connect to the idea that like there's enough people there's enough people who are invested and are willing to have these conversations to make the change that we want to see yeah I mean 
I wouldn't I, I wouldn't be out here screaming in the world if I felt like I was the only one having this conversation. I'm highlighting it because I believe people do care and I believe people are interested once they hear about it. But it's just it's not discussed, whether it's about prisons or family experiences. And it, one of the most amazing experiences, there are two things on, on TikTok um, that have been probably really the most transformative. One is having conversations with people who've been victims of crimes like the one that I committed them reaching out and saying, hey, this is what happened to me. Like, this is how I felt, this is what it was. And me being able to have that conversation and say, like, listen to that and also share my perspective. This is why I did what I did. This is where I was at. And this is why I'm trying to work to make up for it now. And there's this kind of intersection of healing with, it's, it's called restorative justice. And it's it's like, we, we started a pilot program here in, in Admiral County, which I'm really hoping takes off. Um, that's the first one. And then the second meaningful thing has really been when people say, you know, you're a bad person, you need to be in prison. And then we have a few exchanges and they say, well, but what about this? And then we have a few exchanges and by the end they go, you know, I never thought about it that way. Maybe, maybe we do need a change. And you see this transformation as people just wanna be heard, their anger or their frustration or their powerlessness or whatever it is, they just wanna be heard. And as we give them a voice, if we allow them to speak, they become willing to listen as well. And we have a chance to reach people who are kind of angry and yelling at the wind who really aren't bad people who really don't have bad perspectives, but just have a limited view and feel powerless or feel unheard in that moment and aren't willing to listen to anybody else. And if we can open that dialogue, I mean, this, you know, you talk about the people, to me, every parent who stops the transmission of intergenerational trauma or intergenerational trauma is a hero. You know, um, sorry. Um, my dad came from a very abusive home and, uh, a very abusive kind of history. I mean, it was it was ingrained in his family on every level, and he didn't pass that on to me. Um, you know, I may not have had the perfect childhood, but he never hit me. He never abused me. He never neglected me. He never did all the things that were done to him. And I don't think parents get credit for that because to change the fundamental way that you interact with and, and experience the world is one of the hardest things somebody can do. Yeah. And when people do that, it's it's amazing. It should be shouted from the rooftops. So as we see more and more families and more and more parents and more and more people in, in uh, society at large making that change and changing the kind of pattern, I, I think that it does give me hope. And I think it is really amazing. Yeah, that's I, I completely agree with you. <clears throat> I'm trying not to get <laughs> choked up now as well. Yeah, it's lovely. And I think, it, you know, it's such... Um, it's such a hard conversation, but um, I'm so glad that there are people like you, Jesse. Thank you. Yeah. Ah, all right. Is there anything that you want to, any anything that you would want to say directly to like any young people who are kind of dealing with what you were dealing with when you were younger? A couple of things. Um, so, I was getting high and I was drinking because I was lonely and I was angry and I felt like I had to fill this void that had been inside me ever since I was a little kid. And I felt like eventually I would get there. Like this was either a maintenance thing and it would keep me going or eventually I would find something that would fill me up. And somebody told me this a long time ago and it really resonated that the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection. And all I was really looking for was a meaningful connection with myself and with people and with the world around me. And finding that, which I had to get sober before I could find that, was what I'd been looking for my whole life. And I still have hard times and I still have things that I struggle with. But when I realized that I didn't have to keep everything a secret and I didn't have to try to do it myself and I reached out for help, 
it was vulnerable and it was uncomfortable and it was difficult, but it led me to the place in my life that I'm at now. So all I would say is if you're struggling, tell somebody, talk to somebody, just give voice to your pain, whatever it is. You don't have to you know, tell it to your parents. You don't have to tell it to the teacher. Find somebody to talk to. Just share this stuff and don't let it eat you up from the inside because it will. Yeah, that's amazing. So where are you now, Jesse? Like you, you've not even been out of prison for six months and yet like things seem to be going well. They are. I, um, uh, my girlfriend and I are trying to find a place we can move in together. Um, I'm working. I, I started a, a small business doing some consulting, which was it, it was almost kind of a joke to begin with because I've been in prison for 20 years. So what am I going to consult on? But um, because of the success of the TikTok channel, people thought I knew about social media. And I told them very clearly, like, I'm probably not the person you want to hire. And what somebody said that made me feel really good, they said, we're not hiring you for what you know. We're hiring for your brain and for what you're obviously doing. Like, you're obviously doing something right. So I've got a couple opportunities and I'm able to, you know, make a living and I'm able to kind of take care of myself. I'm able to do the outreach work. I'm able to, you know, have a platform to share things and share success stories and share problems. Um, moving forward, I, have, I mean, I have a lot of hopes. I did a, a, as I talked about having access to resources that other people didn't have, there's a psychotherapist or a gestalt therapist that I've worked with for 12 years who's just become, I mean, he's a mentor, he's a friend, he's just an amazing person. And he had me work on this careers course about what was most in alignment with my values and what I wanted and was consistent with who, you know, who I wanted to be. And there were three things. So one was, I want to get licensed. I want to work with people one-on-one. I'd like to be a counselor. And I did that a little bit while I was in prison in a mentoring role. And it's incredibly meaningful and rewarding. Um, two, I want to design programming. I want to, I, we had one of the things I talked about was other than that victim impact program, there's not a single program or conversation about what somebody's done to get to prison. There's no sense of accountability. There's no conversation about what that means. And I think that's horrible because I don't think there can be any healing without accountability. So I designed a program of accountability that we taught in the mental health program where I volunteered. And so to have a program I designed be put to use was incredibly meaningful because it let me know that I can not only work with individuals, but hopefully work with larger groups by designing a program that either teaches the skills or brings up the questions or whatever that people need to move forward. And the third thing is this platform that I have to, to share not only my story, but again, the successes and the struggles and the problems and the solutions and you know, the things that I come across. And I'm so grateful for that. So whether it's TikTok or speaking on a stage or doing longer YouTube videos or whatever, it's a chance to hopefully influence people and open eyes or change minds, but also you know, have my own eyes open and my mind change because people will make comments all the time that I'll say, you know, you're absolutely right. I was wrong about that. Or, you know, I didn't think about it that way. And that's the, that's the benefit of that dialogue that appears to be largely absent in our society as people are yelling at each other from opposite sides of the fence. The ability to have those conversations and to learn and to listen and to hopefully, you know, teach and share is, again, one of the most gratifying things I could imagine. Yeah, good for you. That's amazing. So cool. Well, Jesse, I, I wish you all the luck in the world with um, all of your work moving forward and uh, move, finding a place with your lovely girlfriend and if anyone wants to find you, Jesse, um, what are your sort of handles and stuff on different social media platforms? Where can they find you? Um, on TikTok, it's second underscore chancer, C-H-A-N-C-E-R. Um, I think I actually have a website. Yeah, I think I actually have a website, jessecrosson.com, J-E-S-S-E-C-R-O-S-S-O-N.com. I think that has all the socials on there. We made that one time at like two in the morning when people were asking, and I, I haven't used it since, but yeah, people can find it there. <laughs> amazing thank you so much for coming on today jesse absolutely thank you for having me pleasure thank you so much for listening to this episode if you enjoyed it and think someone you know might benefit from it please do share it with them and leave me a review 
If you'd like more resources and information, you can go to my website, mooksharrishill.com, where you can also join my mailing list or Facebook group to stay up to date and in contact. You can also connect with me on social media at Empaths Revolution. The Empaths Revolution podcast was created and produced by your host, Harris Eddie Hill.